Hi everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing today? Well, David, I've, I've got two stories. Um, I'm grumpy because it's cold here. Uh, you, you know, you had an ice storm in, you know, Oklahoma, but you've got tornadoes in Oklahoma. And uh, so right. it was a little bit sort of a different sort of story, but it suddenly twisted around on me. But my other good news is I think that you're involved in a kind of a family thing. And Correct. that excites me so much. I can't even tell you. Mm-hmm. Tell us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So uh, for our listeners, I am going to be a dad in about 24 weeks or so. Rios is uh, 16 weeks along. And uh, we went to an ultrasound place today up in the city to figure out the sex. And it turns out I'm going to be the father of a son. So very exciting. New new journey for me. Well, and I, I for people who don't know, Rios is beautiful, and yeah. I think there's a real achievement in in getting a very smart, beautiful woman pregnant in today's age. I, I just right. think that's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. That shows hope and optimism on on the part of both of you. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very glad I, I, I've gotten to meet her at least once. And mm-hmm. um, I, I just think that what a cool thing that you're going to be giving birth together. You. you know, Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited. It's also very frightening. Uh, my whole worldview has shifted. We found out at about five weeks. So it's been 11 weeks now of knowing that there's a small creature inside of Rios' (laughs) belly. Um, And over the course of that 11 weeks, uh, we've had, you know, ups and downs and interesting developments, and I've become very attached to the little guy. Um, And what I've really been dealing with and kind of struggling with is the kind of understanding that life in general is very chaotic and that it cannot be controlled. I'm a person who definitely prefers to have control over my surroundings, the situations that I get myself into. And what I've found in very short order to the dismay of my various, uh, you know, anxiety style uh, disorders, whatever they may be. <laughs> I don't believe in, I don't believe in psychiatrists. So I don't know what I have. Um, but you know, finding all this kind of stuff out, I've had to, in a sense, let go. You know, um, there is a constant uh, niggling at the back of my brain about lots of different things, and I have had to come to terms with that. If I don't, I, if I don't confront those things and I don't deal with those things, they will exist for the rest of my life. You know, God willing, you know, the child grows up healthy, nothing untoward happens, you know, I'm going to be constantly thinking and, you know, worrying (laughs) about another creature. And I got to let that go, right? I have to do my best and, and, and be as good of a dad as I can possibly be, uh, without letting my personal hangups and weirdness get in the way. But you know, okay, I I, I hear all of that. Um, 
Doesn't it start though with with recognizing that um, the mother program here is is an ecosystem unto herself? Um, I mean that that really is the, the the crazy thing that 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 males have to recognize about females is that you know we're just I mean you and I lift weights and and we do our shit and you know really we're just like waiting for the next fight, you know, right. Honestly, you yep. really, um, but women are these ecosystems of enormous, well, worldwide capability. I mean, I, I've just been mm-hmm. reading, rereading, uh, Darwin's origin on the origin of the species, which is kind of, um, have you read that book? I have not. No. Well, it's an interesting, you know, I mean, he was forced to publish this book because of Wallace's work in the field. And Wallace is the is the kind of the cool, hippie, uh, cool, you know, nice guy version of, of Darwin. Darwin was a really vicious um, Victorian, I hate God sort of person. And that's really the whole point of the, on the origin of the species is it really a footnote to Nietzsche's um, God is dead. Um, but Wallace came up with the same sort of naturalist historian program from a totally different point of view and really a, a humanist supporting life, you know, Let's have that baby, you know, and make mm-hmm, the world. Right. Let's go. Let's crank it out and do some new shit, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that you would really enjoy um, touching base with those two authors, um, you know, particularly in between now and what? What is it like? April twenty fifth or something? Yeah, April twenty fifth. You got you nailed it, man. Yeah, it's April twenty fifth. Five months away. So well, that's one other very interesting thing that I've noticed about this. So like I said, we found out about it about 11 weeks ago. And when I first found out about it, we went to our first appointment. We saw the sonogram picture of the little, we called it bean for a while. <laughs> um, right, as people do. We, yeah, we saw the bean and um, I thought to myself, okay, cool. I have about eight months to get all this shit together and we can figure it all out and we can figure out what we're doing. And now fast forward almost three months later and I'm down to five months and I'm like, okay, we're going to figure this out in five months. We'll get everything figured out. And I kind of realized, Oh, this is just a thing that's going to happen. Again, that part of my brain that wants to compartmentalize everything and control everything and have everything perfectly kind of set up is not necessarily the brain that is equipped to handle the the constant sort of becoming and 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 personness of a new being in the house there's going to be new challenges every day i have buddies who've had kids and they say you know you're not going to sleep you're um you know you're going to get pissed on shit on thrown up on and your uh, sex and life is going to change exactly right correct um, all of that's going to be very, very different. And so I'm intrigued and slightly nervous about the stuff that's coming down the pipeline. But man, you know, if there's one thing that I think 
well-adjusted men are are good at maybe is adapting and when a person a man or woman really makes the decision that this thing is the focus point of their life um we find a way don't we we have throughout humanity well well that that is the that is the human story isn't it i mean really th- this is where all of the current thinking about the the crisis between men and women goes off the rails entirely i mean we've we've got 4.7 billion people mm-hmm. you know i mean really well, i think it's more than that isn't it isn't it closer to 7 billion maybe I thought it was okay maybe maybe it is no no i think you're actually right i think that that i think i'm doing old school stuff um but i mean the point is <laughs> We're the greatest collaborators the the world has ever seen, you know. Right. Um, and and we're making new creatures and creatures that survive. Um, I I mean I I would like to be your your son. I I, I think that that's a a good starting point. He's going to be patted and petted and you know, nurtured and challenged and, and whacked over the head with maybe a geological hammer that I'll give you. Um, I'm cool. going to give you a geological hammer to whack him over the head with. Um, cool. Yeah, that, that's important. He needs to have that little reminder. Um, right, right. That he's a male and it's just, yeah, bam. <laughs> you know? Right, right. But yeah, I, no, I, I think I, this is really... We're the great collaborative human, well, not human, we're the great collaborative animals of, of mm-hmm. on this planet. Yeah, right. And the whole thing about, you know, male and female, masculine and feminine, which are different things, but we'll just use them as analogous for this thing that I'm saying right now, is that we do have differences and we do clash on things. But that's what makes the whole universe run, right? Is that everything's made in that tension. Everything's made not in in things moving smoothly together, but in the tension that generates energy. That's literally how, like, we did our last episode on electricity. And that's kind of how electricity gets made, right? Electricity doesn't get made by everything just kind of smoothly agreeing with each other. Absolutely right. It's It's constant sort of tension, actually. Which is the real truth of, I think that's a very good point. Um, all of physics, all of physics, um, from the, the deepest mitochondrial level, I mean, you and I couldn't move a finger without the mitochondria in our systems. We mm-hmm. have no idea what's going on with that. We have no idea whatsoever. I mean, your son will have no idea. I mean, right. it's just absolutely well. It's another sort of species with inside, you know, inside us, really. Um, no, a hundred, a hundred percent. I think that the modern science on mitochondria is that they are sort of foreign invaders that have made a, a tenuous kind of peace pact with the rest of our bodies, but we are necessarily a product of you know, the kind of bacteria that we came from and this mitochondria moving in and becoming, you know, this is what you learn in eighth grade biology, the powerhouse of the cell. 
but it's so much more than that. It's a literal foreign agent that is that has its own designs on what you're doing. And it controls everything that we are from the beginning moment of the ultrasound to our death, you know? This this mm-hmm. is um and it may be what actually will what what some very smart people may you know invent is an alternative to death you know i mean i don't know right oh yeah all that kind of stuff freaks me out man i don't know what's going on with all of that i i think that there's a natural process to these things and i think that you know we do have to die eventually and the fact that it is upsetting and hard i think that's kind of part of the whole process but you know getting into that I'd have to get into my sort of what to the listener might sound crazy stuff about, you know, my beliefs in reincarnation and respawning and things like that. And, and, you know, I just, I think that all that difficulty is part of a a larger process. Well, you know, what I think is that I, I, I don't believe I'm going to die. Um, I, I believe that I will go out of, um, a plane Yep. Um, and it'll be a young pilot that I paid off, mm-hmm. and he'll find a way to apologize for my death, um, mm-hmm. and I'll disappear over the great inland sea that I live in now. Um, maybe... Um, well, I'd like it to be um, on a lake. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love mm-hmm. to take you there. Um, I- I'm amazed at how many Americans have not been to uh, the part of the world that that I'm living now, um, because it's just so exciting from every point of view. I-, I just don't know what what point of view it wouldn't be exciting from. Well, and it's also so I have a, a French friend who visits the U.S. occasionally on arts grants, and he is obsessed with the American Southwest, with, you know, the Grand Canyon, the deserts of, uh, you know, Nevada. There's this great uh, stretch of land between... When you're going from El Paso to Carlsbad to visit the caves, you go across these uh, salt flats, these huge, you know, expanses of white sand, right? And to him... As a, a foreigner, that's what he thinks of when he thinks of America. And I wonder if that's true of a lot of people. You know, they don't think of, you know, the woods of Pennsylvania or the, necessarily the swamps of Louisiana or Florida. They think of that Southwest. They think of that big, expansive desert. Monument Valley. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of ma- makes me wonder if, like, if it is it, what is the real... Uh, America in the eyes of a person who's not from America. Wow. Well, see, this is the really mm. interesting thing about where we're at now. What is the real America? What, what, the word real mm-hmm. is is my prosecutorial word. I, I think that's the most dangerous word that has ever been invented. Um, and it's the only one that really translates across the Romance languages into mm-hmm. English. Um, but what, what does America mean Mm -hmm. to people who aren't from here? Um, 
I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I, I go out and photograph or try to photograph America, <laughs> you know? Okay. And what I end up finding, and I know as a writer you'll understand this, um, what I what I find instantly is the frame, you know, and I don't know what to do with the frame. Um, that that's an idea that is is a deep conceptual idea. I've talked to you about um, uh, George mm-hmm. Lakoff's mm-hmm. Uh, metaphors we right. live by, and I think the frame is is the greatest idea and the greatest mm-hmm. limitation that humans face. How do mm-hmm. we deal with the frame? I mean, what is your frame? I mean, you know, you, you've got a frame. You're living in Oklahoma. You can only have so much money. You've got uh, a wife now who's a frame for your baby. Um, you, you've got a lot of frames around you. So how do you think of the frame? Well, there's kind of two ways of thinking about it. The first one is to think about a frame as an orienting vision that can take you towards the future and then the second one is more immediate and i think that the frame is whatever's in your field of vision at this particular time and i don't mean by that i don't mean what you're seeing i mean what's in your particular frame of vision so there can those two i think there's two frames and i think that reconciling those two ends up with a kind of plan that you can make so you do, on the one hand, have to be looking towards, uh, you know, this sort of holistic frame where, you know, you're looking at your past, you're looking at your current geography, you're looking at your future, and you try to blend those things together into, you know, a place that you can go. And then the other one is that immediate frame that is also framed by, uh, you know, where you're at, who you talk to, what you think at that given moment. So I think my personal frame is that I'm a dude who lives in a medium-sized town in Oklahoma. I think that I live in a place that is uh, beset by tornadoes and weirdos and a great tradition of, of art and strange thinking. And I think that I'm going to have to figure out how to square that with my current project of raising a new person in a world that is perhaps very different from the one that I live in now. In fact, I'll take the perhaps out of that. That is very different from the one that I live in now. So that's kind of my... You know, I'm a great memory listener. Um, I, I teach that. And um, you mentioned a word that for the first time in all of the times I've spoken to you, for the first time, holistic, um, which is an overused word in certain frames, um, but it's not overused because it's the first time you've ever used it. Um, what do you mean by that? I, I, I want to hear more. This is the first time you've ever used that word. Yeah, so I would definitely say that holistic to me does not mean what it typically means in the modern parlance, which typically, I think that holistic and homeopathic get used in- interchangeably, particularly when it's, uh, break it comes to things like medicine. But I think that holistic has to bring in a lot of different often conflicting, getting back to that kind of tension, worldviews, into 
a framework that is light on its feet. Holistic to me being means being able to move between different belief systems quickly in a sort of chaos magic sense in order to pick the things that work for you and discard the things that don't and to not be ruled over by a particular ideology that would keep you from, from doing that. So when you look at allopathic medicine, um, it's something that says, you know, there's one problem and there's one solution and that solution is more drugs. Then you, when you move to homeopathic medicine, it says that there are multiple problems and multiple solutions and we have to constantly keep like an octopus in a little control room, keep our, our, you know, our limbs moving all these different levers and pressing different buttons and things like that. And I think that when you get to that, you are, by doing homeopathy, you are getting closer to a holistic way of approaching health. But whole, but holism, if that's the word, not sure, but holism is, is more to me, an overarching way of looking at things. So this might get back to your frame question in a much better way, where my holistic view of the universe includes um, things like science. It includes things like modern medicine. It includes things like uh, political machinations and, and, and corporate machinations and all these things. But it also includes things like animism and magic and, uh, you know, the power of the causative power of thought into the soup that we can then be able to sort of have a more uh, a three-dimensional and effective way of looking at the world and at, you know, creating art. I just, I don't think that you can be a real artist without having a holistic view of the space that you're in at any given time. Well, I no, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, we know my struggle as an artist is that um, it is with the frame. Um, I have shot photographs around the world. Um, you know, I mean, where? Africa, you know, northern China, you know, wherever. Um, India, you know, trying hard to be a, a, a photographic artist um, trying hard to be a, a physical painter, artist, uh, a writer, you know, and I always come up against the problem of the frame. I, I never can get really outside the frame in the way that I think. Um, well, for instance, I mean, my, my view is that that all of my, the whole modern era has been an attempt to get outside the frame. I think that's what quantum mechanics tried to do. I think that um, that's what Picasso tried to do. Um, Kandinsky, I mean, you know, what more, how much more could they do? Um, but I still see it, I still see life as being embraced by a frame. And I'm coming around to the point that I need to make my peace with the frame. And I wonder, you know, as you're approaching fatherhood in, and you're, you know, really a much younger man, um, do you see the possibility or the, the necessity of making peace with the frame in that way, in the terms that I mean? Yeah. 
Well, yes and no. I think that it's, I think that, I think I'd have to understand the frame concept a bit more before I could necessarily have an informed opinion about it. But if I know what you mean, and I think I know what you mean. Um, well, you do. I, you, yeah. you, you, you do know what yeah. I mean. I really, I think you yeah. do. Um, as much as anyone does. Right, right. So I think that the answer is a little bit tricky in that, yes, you do have to make peace with the frame, but the frame is amazing. Um, gosh, I think Terrence McKenna said this, but... Just said gosh. <laughs> you just said gosh. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out for saying gosh. Oh, gosh. Um, so I, th- I think that Terrence McKenna said this, but it might not have been him. But he said, the thing is that it's all inside your head. But the trick to that is that you have no idea how big your head is. And I think that we could apply right. that to the frame. So everything is within the frame. But the trick is that we don't know how big the frame actually is. We don't know the possibilities that are, um, possible within and also necessitated by the frame. And so I think that I think there's a lot of room to move within the frame. And I think that the concept of the frame itself and moving outside of the frame is very fraught because wouldn't you say that as soon as you move out of the frame, that's just a new frame? Yes. That's the problem. That's the problem I've found as an artist. Um but you know, on the other <laughs> One of the things that's really cool here is that we're trying to reach out to people like Rupert Sheldrake and Brian Eno mm-hmm. and the legacy people of Terrence McKenna. Mm-hmm. He's dead now. We we can't get him. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to reach out to those people and um I I'm just loving this 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 thing that you're doing about like ex- extending my frame. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that basically when you so there are people who have very small frames that are place bound, are family bound, are gender bound, are all these kind of things. But you can, I think that you can extend a frame without necessarily getting rid of the frame itself because I think that the frame is a necessary component to being incarnated as we are right now. I think that the whole point of being alive in the way that we're alive is that we have a frame. Because when you and I are dead and we're, you know, doing whatever it is that we think, actually, let's get into it. I I don't want to skirt around this this issue. So what I think happens when we die is, is that our energy goes out into a big sort of river that that then becomes infinitely separated uh and 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 sparse right but still maintains its coherence through a kind of power of magnetism that that we that we've had throughout our various sundry lives um so when we die, we're going to be experiencing existence in a very 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 different way. I think that that is the way to see life without a frame. But I think that the deal that we make when we get incarnated into these bodies with brains and eyeballs and, you know, a certain way of seeing this, that, and the other, and and biases and tribes and, and countries and things like that, it is necessarily imposing a frame. But that, in fact, 
might be the whole point of this whole thing, and it might be a very beautiful thing at the end of everything. So I, I don't think it's necessary to try to get outside of it. I think it's necessary to push yourself deeper into it. Well, that would be my idea. Um, I, I think that's exactly the right idea, and that's exactly the, the idea that the greatest artists of all time have um, have pursued, you know? I mean, really, that, that is the, the, the core uh, of, of what art actually means, is digging into um, the limitations of the frame, you know, in, in my terms. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... Uh, but there were some really lovely moments there about... Uh, and, and I just want to touch on this because, you know, for people listening... We need to talk to each other um, because there are moments where there are certain things that get said that will never, ever get said otherwise. And I, I just think that, that there was a couple of moments there about um, <clears throat> David's view about what what's going to happen to us when we die. Um, and it reminds me of some people I knew in college that, that I could have a really great conversation with. And that dialogue um, doesn't really exist except in some dim notes, you know, that I made, um, you know, because I was stoned out of my mind. Right, right. Um, but, I was, I, you know, I was a young man. I was high, you know, mm -hmm. and... and but I think that the point is that what we can do for each other is talk mm -hmm. and to build a conversation, you know, that is really a, a robust, energetic thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, because honestly, you wouldn't have said the things that you said about the idea of, of, of what your idea, you know, really the end of life mm -hmm. <laughs> um you wouldn't have said that mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't have said that so well um without some pressure of the microphone and you know sure the moment yeah. you yeah. know um so we need to get with this idea of, of helping each other speak to interesting ideas and forcing each other actually um you know, it's a little sparring. It's a little like a little bit of fisticuffs, mm -hmm. you know. There's nothing wrong with sure. that. You know, if I threw a punch at you, you you'd go, okay, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's like, um, that's just the start of a, of a dialogue, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not really trying to hit you and kill you, sure. you know. Um, but it's a, it's a beginning of a, a, a conversation that, I don't know. Have we have we lost this ability to have this? Because what I think is that you and I have this, and I know this about a couple of people um, who are strangely enough so far removed from the American system. They're Africans, um, and and they are like on board with a discussion. So, I, what am I talking about here? I mean. I, I'm talking about something, having a conversation with people in today's times, 
What is that about? Well, it's about um, it's it goes back to the frame. I love this concept of the frame. Now you got me hooked on the frame. So you okay. know, I I think that the easy answer for this would be to say that talking to other people expands your frame. But I'm not really sure if that's the goal or the best thing to do. Um, I think that when you look at art and you look at art that gets you know, artists that get perpetually more complex as they move on in their career, they become somehow less interesting versus someone someone mm. like Picasso someone mm. like Picasso, uh, who, you know, towards the end of his career, after doing, you know, all these phenomenal, you know, cubist paintings, right? Like, I'm gonna really butcher this, but Le Le Demoiselles de Avignon? The prostitutes, right? I, I, I'm fucking that up, and I'm really sorry about that. I'm, I don't speak French. Um, no, it's a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but, you know, you go past that, and then... You're from Oklahoma. Right, exactly. That, that was my Oklahoma version of, of, those, of those words. Big apologies to our French listeners. Um, but then you get to a point where Picasso was doing these one-line drawings, right? There's that classic one of the penguin... You see it where he just where it's all one line and he sort of like sketches a penguin. It's it's infinitely simplistic, and I I don't know if I uh, have the quote. I, well, I don't have the quote in front of me, but Picasso said that you know he got to a certain point in his career where he was trying to go back to drawing like he was a child, where he was you know mm. getting rid of this infinite complexity and going back to something much more simple. And I think that that is the path in all aspects of life, of political life, artistic life, uh, you know, relationship life. You know, think about when you had a friend when you were a kid, you know, it was somebody who you met, who you went up to, and you said, hey, do you want to be friends? And that kid said, sure. And then you guys were exploring places together. You were, you were imagining things together you would like this was your guy right like you would never give that person up and now when we get into our lives right so i'm 33 going on 34 and we get to this place where everything is infinitely complex politics are infinitely complex relationships between people are infinitely complex and people are you know dropping their friends left and right because of this that and the other and it's like the, the the shift or the move here is to explore your frame to its outer limits. So so do all of those things. You know, follow your particular ideology or artistic inclinations to its limit. And then, and this is when the really interesting stuff happens, because most people aren't hanging children's drawings in a museum anywhere. But the interesting thing happens when you reach those outer limits and then you come back, right? And then you intentionally begin contracting that frame back to the things that actually matter, that are actually important. So I think Picasso is a great example of this. I think that, I think that when you think about things, uh, maybe politically, ideology, we won't get into all that kind of stuff, but like... You're, you go out and you reach the kind of outer limits of the discourse, which is what something like Twitter is really good for. And then you start pulling back and you start to see that every all these circuitous thoughts that you had acted very much like a circuit that brought you back to simplicity, that brought you back to a kind of focus and, and, and a kind of a smaller frame. 
if you will. But it's a it's a smaller frame that's different from the small frame that you left when you left home. Does that does all that make sense? Yeah, you know, and I have two things to um one of the great moments in uh, my mother I can talk about my mother. Yeah, let's do um, it. she's ninety two. She she didn't actually like the fact that I liked girls. Mm. And uh, wanted to um, do the deal with girls. Um, mm-hmm. But she did support, actually, one of my girlfriends. Um, we came to uh, the West Coast, and, and my mom paid for a trip to um, on the train up to Vancouver, which is a great city. It is. I don't oh, know. it's great. It, it, it just, it, it's one of the greatest... Uh, I wish we all could afford to live there. Um, But there was a Picasso exhibit on um, that had all of his non-famous printed works. So stuff as as a printer, you know, not as a painter. Um, And I was was absolutely shocked uh, how great the artistry was. Um, and then he, th- because of that great moment, uh, of seeing that exhibit, mm-hmm. um, when I went back to Australia, I, I checked out an artist named Peter Booth, who, um, who had a very strange experience, which is very much like something that happened to me. Um, he was living, you know, a nice artistic life (laughs) and some drug dealers thought he was the guy Mm -hmm. and broke into his house and they beat him over the head and he had a life-changing experience um which is a little bit sort of in the zone that um uh, of my world um i certainly know what it's like to have drug dealers break into your house Uh um but he created an entirely different world of his painting from the basis of going back to his experience as a framer, mm-hmm. as a framer. Mm-hmm. There's that word at again. The Victorian College of the Arts. There's that word yeah, again. He, he went back to that. He went back to that idea because, and this is what, you know, I mean, really, if Peter Booth and Picasso can go back to being framers. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, what all these artists that are above that, mm-hmm. you know, right. I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, really, right. come on. Right. Yeah, no, 100%. So I think that what you're saying is really interesting, again, with the fact that these painters went back to uh, kind of making the clay. I have this thing that I say whenever I'm... Yeah, that's the way to put it, David. Thank you. That's the way to put it. So so basically, I say whenever you're writing a first draft of a novel, I call that making the clay. Because all you're really doing is sitting down, you're letting whatever channels through you channel through you, and you're not paying attention to... uh, You know, all the things that we writers get bogged down in. Grammar and, and syntax and, you know poetry and all like sometimes poetry does come through in that first draft in fact it often does 
But what you're really doing there is you're making clay. And once you have that first draft down, you go back and you begin shaping that clay. And I think that the the shift from, you know, once you've made clay into the most beautiful sculptures that you could imagine, your attention does shift to the clay itself. And you become very fascinated with that clay. And I think that that is the natural progression of a real artist. I think that most real artists, when they get later in life, they become obsessed with, you know, what makes up my paints? You know, who stretched uh, this particular canvas? Who made the film that I'm that I'm shooting this film on? Right. Like they become very it's it's an obsession with the medium that only comes after the practical and artistic uses for that medium have been exhausted. Well, I hope people just heard that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because Dave is actually not that smart, really. (laughs) He just got smart in the moment. Yeah, sometimes Um, I get I get I get possessed. Like I said smart genuinely like I like I said a few episodes ago, I blacked out. You know? I just I black out sometimes and and the spirit channels through me. Well, thank goodness. (laughs) Uh you know, it is important that that's what art is really about. Um, and if you try to practice art over, you know, a much longer lifetime than David has tried, mm-hmm. um, you, you realize that just how much um, survival mechanism you need mm-hmm. to, 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 to stay strong um, and, and to stay canny. You know, canny is a wonderful um we don't use that term much. Sailors use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, if you stay canny when you're sailing around the like Cape Horn, I mean, how many people have sailed around Cape Horn? I mean, I think I'm the only one I know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, who has done that. And it's an ugly bit of business. Right. I got to tell you, it's it's just it's just fucking ugly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Um, but I think what what really counts here is being alert to your neighbor's moments of lucidity, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that um, I applaud you, David. I, I I think you had a I think you know you have a few moments <laughs> that, that excite me, you know, and I I don't say that about uh, anyone, you right, know, right. I want to. Let everybody know that I am paying attention to the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. I've gotten a few emails that, again, very sorry, my email was down. I will respond to those immediately, but we do appreciate all those uh, messages that people are sending in. There's a lot of food for thought in those. We will address those in future episodes. I'm on Twitter at BRBJDO. Please do follow me. Uh, follow Chris at Chris Sacknessem, uh, that's K-R-I-S-S-A-K-N-U-S-S-E-M. And yeah, just this show is kind of blowing up, man. It's it's pretty fucking cool. Like people are really digging this shit. Well, it's, it's so good and we need to make some money because you've got a son to raise. That's true. That's true. You know? We have some interesting you know? plans in the future of stuff that I think is really cool, whether it's courses or, you know, bonus episodes, things like that. So that's all in the mix right now. But um, for now, Chris, I think we'll sign off. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>